Hi, and welcome to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. I'm Nina Wiklund. And I'm Daniela Irsamtosi. And together, we'll be exploring news, ideas, and developments in sleep and respiratory medicine. On Air is intended for healthcare professionals only. Hello to our listeners. This is a special edition of On Air, focusing on highlights from the European Respiratory Society Conference 2023 that took place in Milan. Together with Nina, we welcome two special guests today who will give us their main insights from the Congress. Welcome Lian Kay, Director of Behavioral Research and Digital Insights at RESMED, based in San Diego, U.S., Hi, everyone. And Adam Benjamfield, Vice President, Medical Affairs, Clinical Research, based in Sydney, Australia. Hello. Leanne, you were one of the scientists arriving at the airport with these long poster holders on your back. Your team's abstract was also worth carrying, since it was highlighted as one of the best abstracts among the oral sessions in behavioral science. I would like to ask you, what is behavioral science and what was your abstract about? Thanks, Nina. As a behavioral scientist and researcher, this is Easily the number one question that I get, what exactly is a behavioral scientist? And like most scientists, the answer isn't always exact. But essentially, behavioral science is a field of study that draws on economics, sociology, psychology, and biology to better understand how humans behave and why we behave the way that we do. And then once we can understand the human behavior, we can start to build programs that help humans achieve the goals that they set out for themselves. And that was kind of the approach or the basis for our team's oral presentation at ERS this year. We put on our behavioral science hats, so to speak, and asked what behavioral characteristics might be driving the use of PAP therapy in OSA. And so we examined data from a large PAP therapy survey, which asked users with OSA about their experience with PAP therapy, their knowledge around PAP, how confident they were and motivated they were to use it. And ultimately, what we found was that users with greater confidence, those who were self-motivated or even those who identified a motivator, um, and those who experienced a perceived improvement in snoring, were on average one and a half to two times more likely to use their PAP therapy at 90 days. And interestingly, we also looked at these results by gender and noted that there were some differences between males and females, such as males being self-motivated, whereas females were more motivated by improvements in their health. Um, Males were more driven by confidence than females, for example. So what does all of that mean? Ultimately, this may signify that behavioral determinants like confidence, motivation may present opportunities to design products and programs that promote behaviors to help patients stick with their PAP therapy. Um, But it may also indicate different ways that we may talk to female and male users with OSA, very much like how ResMed thinks about different algorithms for males versus females, for example. Thank you, Leanne. It's really interesting to hear your thoughts and your view on this as behavioral scientist. Leanne, you were at the ATS this spring and now at ERS. Were there any specific topics that were highlighted in both of these huge congresses? Yes, thanks, Nina. I've had the pleasure of attending ATS for many years now, but this was my first in-person ERS Congress, which was truly just such a treat to attend from a scientific perspective. But to your question, both of these international congresses attract thousands of clinicians, researchers, as well as pharma and commercial entities like ResMed because of its broad range of topics in sleep and respiratory care, but also because it brings the opportunity to foster relationships in person to see people that you may have not typically seen throughout the year. 
Um, but when I think about the question at hand, I think of three overlapping themes that I've observed at both conferences. And the first is that putting the person and not the condition at the center of care is key. So really starting to understand the needs of people living with sleep and respiratory conditions and how to care and support them remain of key importance at both conferences. And naturally, that also includes personalization of therapy, whether through clinical phenotyping, for example, even using machine learning to create algorithms for adaptive therapy. The second theme that I've noticed is this use of advanced analytics to better anticipate global burden of disease. So for example, our team presented a series of posters aiming to estimate how many people would be impacted by COPD in the next 30 years, specifically drawing on global public data sets. But the use of advanced analytics are also being applied to anticipate patient behaviors, for example, and also test out various study designs and interventions, potentially look at lower costs and greater uh, speed of um, compared to traditional randomized control trials, for example. And of course, that's not to say that advanced analytics will solve all scientific inquiry, um, but rather it demonstrates itself as one of those important tools in our research toolbox. And then finally, the, the third point that I've noted was that we haven't yet realized the full potential of digital health tools. And so at both of these conferences, we've seen a growing acknowledgement of the value of digital health tools, whether it be mHealth or eHealth or telemedicine, for example. That the bigger questions are starting to be, one, who pays for these tools? And then two, how do we get them to scale and to scale equitably? Um, those remain the important things that we think about when we think about the sustainability of digital health. So in summary, putting the person, not the condition at the center of care, uh, the use of advanced analytics to better understand patient populations, and the third one, really working hard to understand the full potential of digital health tools. So Adam, you are one of the names behind a whole range of frequently cited sleep publications. You're also part of Medix Cloud. So I think it's worth telling us what is Medix Cloud and what were your main insights when it came to sleep research for this year's ERS? Thank you, Daniela, for asking about Medix Cloud. Medix Cloud is an academic industry collaboration that was formed back in 2016. And it works to improve the lives of patients by uncovering valuable insights from real world data in sleep and respiratory medicine. This year at ERS, there was a very strong scientific program for sleep disordered breathing. My main insights from the conference was that there was continued development and discussion around how we can better phenotype obstructive sleep apnea patients based on clinically important outcomes. This was also connected to very robust discussions around diagnostics for obstructive sleep apnea and how new technologies may play a role to help with this process. Other insights for me were presentations on the clinical management for the treatment of sleep disordered breathing, such as the use of telemonitoring and its cost effectiveness for people with obstructive sleep apnea, as well as the use of adaptive servo ventilation to treat centrally sleep apnea, leading to improvements in quality of life for patients with treatment-emergent central sleep apnea, cardiovascular-related central sleep apnea, and central sleep apnea related to stroke. Those were some of my main insights from this year's ERS. Thank you, Adam, for those insights. 
really interesting, all the broad topics that are brought up at the ERS this year. So you have been following the involvement closely when it comes to the use of high flow therapy in the home setting. Did you see that there have been any mindset changes if you compare the sessions from previous conferences to this year's setting at ERS 2023? Yes, I think in a presentation by Patrick Murphy, he summed it up very well when he said high flow therapy really is the new kid on the block. As this highlighted that there is real interest in how high flow therapy may play an important role in the long term management of patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, patients who have mucociliary clearance issues and possibly other chronic conditions. There were a lot more sessions at this year's ERS that covered high flow therapy and also a mindset change in that when also including non-invasive ventilation into the discussion, it really brought those discussions to be what is the right therapy for the right patient at the right time. Sessions at ERS that were focusing on non-invasive ventilation were permeated with high-flow therapy discussions, but this also occurred the other way around, highlighting that both therapies play an important role in the management of people with chronic respiratory failure. There are some ongoing randomized controlled trials on high-flow therapy and COPD, and these will provide important insight into how best to manage these patients in the years to come. Thank you very much, Adam, for those insights. Changing a little bit the topic, a lot of interest is around the impact of CPAP treatment for OSA on mortality. Interesting abstracts were presented with data coming from Spain and France. What are your thoughts around this? I agree. These were very interesting and important abstracts. Both of these studies used real-world data. This is important because this real-world data reflects the patients being treated in sleep clinics compared to those in the randomized controlled trials where there are always multiple inclusion-exclusion criteria making the cohort less generalizable. The study from France used data from the Pays de Loire sleep cohort that was linked to French national health insurance database information. For Spain, it was registry data provided by the Agency of Healthcare Quality and Evaluation of Catalonia, as well as the Catalan Statistical Bulletin of Death. Both of these studies controlled for confounders to manage the non-randomized nature of their data. But they had sample sizes much larger than those seen in recent obstructive sleep apnea randomized controlled trials. There were just under 4,200 people in the French study and just over 7,200 in the Spanish study. Interestingly, both studies found similar results in each of their unique healthcare systems. And that was the continued use of PAP therapy to treat obstructive sleep apnea resulted in significantly improved likelihood of survival, which is a very important long-term outcome for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. Yes, thank you very much, Adam. Let's turn towards the AHI. The AHI alone is not always giving a clear answer, and there are many discussions ongoing, one being having different marker to identify 
sleep disorder breathing properly and ultimately give the patient the right treatment at the right time, as you mentioned before. This is a topic that we talked to Professor Ludka Grote about in one of the previous editions of the on-air podcast. So what are your thoughts around it? As I mentioned earlier, this topic connects to what I was talking about in regards to better phenotyping patients in relation to uh, outcomes. Raphael Heinzer gave an excellent summary of some of the new metrics being looked at in research that appear to better align with mortality and morbidity than the AHI alone. These metrics, like hypoxic burden, heart rate variability, and pulse wave amplitude drops, are some of these new measures that have been explored. As you mentioned in your previous on-air podcast with Ludka, these are currently research tools. More research does need to be done to better understand their clinical utility and to have them available in scalable sleep diagnostic solutions. I would like to say an advantage of the AHI is that it is well understood by the medical community as well as being connected with reimbursement. I believe we will still see AHI being used into the future. However, I expect it will be supplemented with some of these newer metrics to give a more comprehensive overview of the person, as medicine does not typically rely on just a single metric. Thank you, Adam, for all these insights. Very interesting. Turning back to Leanne, we talked about the similarities between the ATS and the ERS Congress this year, but what would be your overall takeaways from the ERS Congress overall this year? Uh, yes, Nina. So we've touched on uh, many of the interesting takeaways through the course of the conversation today. So I think I'd like to just briefly highlight two more. Uh, first and foremost, I think I've mentioned this to everybody since returning, but I was so impressed with how engaged the attendees were at ERS this year. Generally, I felt that the attendees were very thoughtful and there was a lot of thoughtfulness behind the workshops, the presentations, the discussions, and really just came across as this overall desire to learn and debate uh, the science. And for me, that was very personally invigorating. The second takeaway I think that's important to also mention, and we haven't really touched on this yet, that the conference theme this year was pollution, climate change, and sustainable developments, which is an important nod, I think, to the climate challenges that we're facing today as a global community. And for some of our listeners, I imagine that they may be scratching their heads a little bit, wondering what's this connection between climate and sleep and respiratory health? And the way I think about it is if we think, for example, let's take asthma, which impacts hundreds and millions of children and adults globally, Many of those individuals have symptoms which may be triggered by their extended environment, meaning that more extreme temperatures, shifts in season and weather, uh, worsening air quality may further exacerbate how well they manage their condition and in turn may increase the need for additional healthcare intervention. What does that mean? Increased healthcare intervention means more economic cost for the hospital or the healthcare system, but also potentially an increased carbon footprint from hospitals or the medication materials used to take care of these patients or people with asthma in order to better support the shift in patient needs. So climate issues can be deeply intertwined with healthcare, and we know that it can be further intertwined with healthcare disparities as well as the social determinants of health. 
So it's a very complex but important issue to try and get ahead of. So overall, I think the Congress did a really nice job in highlighting the need for more scientific work in those areas. But they also did a really nice job in putting all the research into practice at the conference itself. So ERS asked all in-person attendees to report on their travel arrangements, whether that was by train, plane, how far they travel, for example, to try and better account for the climate emissions associated with the event itself. ERS also had a commitment to contribute to a portion of the proceeds from the conference to climate-related projects. And they're big advocates for clean air policies within Europe. They recently had a nice position statement, for example, in the ERS journal. And I just think that says a lot about the importance of this topic and where more work is needed. So in summary, a really excellent conference, lots of excellent discussion, and obviously a clear call to talk about more about this tie between climate and health and how we might address it. Yeah, what's your view, Adam? You have attended several scientific conferences this year and over the years. What would you say made this year's ERS different to previous years? In addition to the uh, excellent summary that Leanne just gave, this year's ERS was the first one that was not restricted in numbers due to COVID-19 measures. Uh, there were approximately 17,500 attendees at the conference, so it had a real buzz of networking and discussions during sessions, between sessions in the exhibit hall. Also, another focus for ERS is that they report on metrics related to diversity, such as delegate representation based on age and sex. ERS have also adopted a hybrid system in that all oral sessions were recorded so that they can be watched again at a later date and all posters could be uploaded as e-posters. So despite the conference being over in person, all the content is still available online so that you can catch any sessions that you missed or any sessions that you want to review off. Yeah, we were happy enough to be able to network with the two of you at the ERS and we are very, very happy to have you here today in the podcast. And uh, with that, we would like to thank the both of you, Leanne and Adam, for taking the time to discuss this year's ERS with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for the invitation and opportunity, Nina and Daniela. And thank you to the listeners. You've been listening to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. For new episode alerts and clinical updates, subscribe to our newsletter.